Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 2, Episode 6, No Exit. Let's get this show on the road. Okay, can we just start this episode by saying, I think for the first time going into this, I had no idea what the title was referring to. Like, I feel like most episodes, even if you just read the title, you can kind of guess as to what you're going to be dealing with. And, like, I really had no idea going into it. I was just like, is it like a house you can't leave? Is it like you can't leave the town? Is it... I, I, I did, like... Would not have expected this to be Super Murder Ghost. <laughs> super Murder Ghost. So I actually have some thoughts about the title of the episode and how that relates to like the theme of it. But first, would you like to give us a recap? I'm ready. All right, perfect. So I will count you down. Three, two, one, go. We start on a cold open of a, as we will be described later, a petite blonde who discovers some weird, like, creepy goop dripping out of, like, her walls as her lights are flickering like crazy, only to be spooked by an eyeball through a light socket, which is wholeheartedly just creepy. Um, The boys learn about this case because Joe seems to have been researching it, and they leave Ellen and Joe's place to go after whatever this thing might be, only to run into Joe, who does that classic, like, pretend-to-be-Dean's you know, like, partner, so they can be like, oh, we're just a couple buying a place. Um, and they find out that it seems to be a ghost, because this is ectoplasm, which we find out only really powerful ghosts can make. And they start doing their research, and they can't figure out who it is, until finally Sam, who turns out to be a true crime buff, figures out that it's the ghost of H.H. H. Holmes, an actual real-life serial killer, who is really prolific, and we'll talk about it during the show, um, only to trap, finally save Joe, who's been kidnapped by him, to then trap him in a salt ring, and then cover him in cement, and then really awkward encounter with Ellen at the end because of how they lied to her about Joe, and, ooh, things get bad when they learn more about uh, Ellen's past with John. And time. I don't know, I didn't do the timer. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, for once, I have the timer, don't ask why, I had 15 seconds left. Yeah, nice, wow, 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 that's actually a good one. Whew. That was, uh, yeah. once again, I did not, exp- as good as, uh, hey, again, love this episode. I thought it was really fun. I have a lot to say about the idea of bringing in a real life serial killer as the villain. It's a pretty meaty episode given how much time they do dawdle. There's actually a lot of action that happens. And like you said, there is a lot of, of meat when you're actually looking for it, I think. I always, it's really funny because like, So I watched this episode, I think, on Monday. This is Thursday. And I was telling you that I was really excited about, you know, recording this with you. But then literally, like, half an hour before we started recording, I was like, what's the episode about again? What's the plot? What what happens? (laughs) So clearly, like, there is an element of, like, it being a filler episode. Let's move on to the the long game really quickly. Three things that I'd like to note in this episode... One is that Sam's hair has changed at this point. 
We no longer have the long like Bieber bangs. We now have like a middle part, which I think would make our Gen Z listeners very happy. So Sam now has a middle part. We also find out about Sam's love for true crime and serial killers. Sam being a fan of it makes perfect sense to me. (laughs) I see why, but can you explain to me why? I feel like people who enjoy true crime tend to enjoy kind of like the idea of solving a puzzle, even if it isn't one they are going to solve, but just sort of being a part of it or knowing about it. And I feel like Sam believes he is smart enough that he may be able to glean something that someone else has missed, which I think is also something we see a lot in true crime fans is they think that they may be the ones to you know catch something that someone else missed. I feel like Sam really thinks he could be the one to solve these because he's already solved so many other more supernatural cases. What makes these any different? The last thing that I will say, and that one is a bit more morbid, is that Ellen says the line about Joe, I won't lose you too. I just won't. And that's something that we need to keep in mind. Like, I don't know if this is a longer theme for Ellen going forward, which I can imagine, because obviously, as we'll learn about her deceased husband, there is a there is a story and I want to know more of that story. Speaking of story. Let's move on to story time. You were actually talking earlier about the title of the episode, which I know this is usually the type of thing that we would reserve for critical time, but I will just mention really quickly that apparently this was named after a play by uh, Jean-Paul Sartre called No Exit, where three people are trapped in a small room together in hell, only to find out that they're supposed to act as each other's torturers. I'm trying to see if I can find deeper meaning, because obviously we do have the three of them in a smallish uh, apartment together. Sam is absent for most of this episode. I know that we talk about that later. There's more reason behind it than just storytelling, but like Sam is just not there for the majority of this. It's really Dean and Joe. And I don't particularly feel like either one really attacked the other one in any way. I know there's a a bit of a butting heads over her pig poker of a knife, uh, pig sticker of a knife, sorry, as Dean calls it. And then we learn about where she got in all that. But camaraderie seems pretty okay there. I I know. Like, this was weird to me, too, because, like, again, knowing what I know about the series, I know that this there's actually a very weird, vivid foreshadowing to season four there. But I, I don't want to talk about that just yet. That title meant to me, the more I thought about the episode, is more about how Dean and and Sam to a lesser degree, though, can't quite escape John's legacy. I'll be very honest, that's not what I went to. Like, when I had to try to find a use for the title, I had a very different one, more specific, um, I think is the word I'm looking for. But yeah, you're right, that is the kind of a, that is a point that's really well brought up with the whole idea of Joe wanting to be a hunter because it would be in memory of her father and feel close to him. Dean, I mean, he spills out really well there when he talks to Joe that first time when they're uh, exploring the hallways, is this is a life he was basically forced into, and he wishes he would have had the choice to not have to do it. Absolutely. And like, that's really one thing that we start seeing from the beginning of the episode, like, because you can, you can feel like even in the in those opening scenes that there's a really strong emphasis on Ellen not wanting Joe to hunt, like she's very clear about it. And that's such a huge contrast with John, who actually encouraged the boys to hunt, as we've found out in other episodes, where he was taking them on hunts, he was encouraging Dean as young as 16 to actually, like, kill creatures. 
You mentioned also in your recap that they were doing like this whole like fake couple thing, which is so tropey, you know, like the fake couple trope. And Dean's not super happy about it, obviously, because he knows that Ellen doesn't want Joe to hunt and he knows that this is complicated and he understands that like this is bad news. But he goes along with it anyway. I don't really get why. I think there's a part of Dean that respects Joe. Like, I, I don't think it, I don't think that goes without saying. I think there's definitely a, a friendship and a camaraderie and a respect there. But I think there's a part of Dean that just wants to give her the benefit of the doubt. Like, she's clearly doing this with a plan in mind. She clearly means well. And I think that just comes from Dean's need to be kind of a people pleaser. Ooh, I see that. Again, from a very, like, work standpoint, because, again, like, they're on duty, they are actively hunting, they need to make sure that they can pass. Like, what if he had turned around to this guy saying, I don't know who she is, she's being crazy, and then suddenly you have the landlord being like, okay, then who the hell are you two, and why the hell are you doing in our building that I should know you're here? And I think there's a quick enough reflex to go play along because this is the safest bet. Better to go along with a lie and then figure it out when you're not in front of the person you're lying to. Because it's clear, the second they're away from this guy and they're all in the room together... Dean is like, go home, (laughs) leave, you're out of here. Okay, so that conversation was really interesting to me also because like we start understanding that he's actually upset because he never had the protection that Ellen is giving Joe, right? Like he never had a choice in becoming a hunter. Like you said, like John indoctrinated him into it. He isolated him. He gave him a subpar education. All that sort of results in Dean not having many options outside of hunting for his life, right? And he says, Joe has options. And he feels like she's throwing those options away by willingly choosing hunting. And that's that must hurt because that's something that he was never given. Like she has these opportunities and this privilege that he does not have. Can we take that a step further even? We are now in a position where if we look back a few episodes, Dean literally had this conversation with Sam and Sam saying, no, I'm thinking maybe I'll keep up the hunting after this is all over. And Dean is broken by it because he knows that he can tell Sam like, no, I may have no future, but you do. You can go back to school. You can resume your education. You can walk away from this. You have other paths available, much like Joe does. And here are people that he's looking at enviously wishing that he could have a different path to go down, but doesn't know anything else but this life. And here they are throwing away those other options to follow the path that he is on. Dean. Poor Dean. (laughs) And that's the thing, right? Like Dean knows that following in your dad's footsteps isn't what it's cracked up to be, which is what Joe wants so badly. Like, they do a really good job this episode of, like, connecting you to Joe and feeling for her. Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Joe in there. And in this case, I think she's also, like, a mirror for what's happening inside of Dean, right? Because, like, her willingness to actually follow in the footsteps of her dad and to, to, to actively choose hunting is supposed to contrast with what's happening inside of Dean at the moment. Like when they're exchanging stories about their dads, like Dean is telling the story. She, I think she asks him something like, when you think about your dad, what do you think? And it's like the first thing that comes to your mind. And Dean tells... Oh, it's, it's what is your earliest memory? Which is really interesting that he chose something when he was like six years old. Because, like, I feel like he would have memories from before that. And, like, he tells that story about John taking him shooting, like we were talking about earlier, and, like, him bullseyeing all the bottles on the fence. 
And what I'm hearing in this story is a story of acceptance because John was smiling because he was proud of his six-year-old for shooting with aim. Dean, as a kid, would have heavily leaned into that, I think, in order to get more praise and acceptance from John. As early as six, we have Dean's identity that's already starting to revolve around, like, getting praise from his dad and guns and, to a certain degree, also violence. This is super interesting to me because you had mentioned in season one about how almost, like, pornographically the guns are displayed in some episodes. And, like, you know, like, you had mentioned, I think, like, the way that Dean pulls out the guns, like, how he's showed cleaning them. And then in a few episodes also, like, I had noticed, I think that it was in Provenance, that like Sam and Dean are actually at the library looking up information about the case. And then you can actually see Dean reading a book about guns. Like guns do no. not leave. Yes. <laughs> and I, I remember like noticing it and being like, oh, another instance of the guns. But like it never made it to the to the recording or the podcast. But like, yes, absolutely. If you go back, like you will see that. In a way, like I think that maybe this is like a, a narrative way of explaining Dean's interest in guns. Like the the link that they have with this good memory of his dad. And so now that John is gone, I think it'll be really interesting to kind of see if that stays or if that fades. To look at the subtle things of like, yeah, like if he's reading a book on guns in a library, like that's an intentional choice. That is not just a weird coincidence. For sure. This is, yeah, honestly, like this, this scene to me meant so much like, and we're not even done. Like then Joe explains her story, right? She Mm -hmm. says, she tells the story about like how when her dad would come home after a hunt, like that he would like hug her and it's all like puppies and rainbows. But what do we know about John after hunts and how Dean was greeted after that. What we know, and this is something that John himself said in in My Time of Dying, like he'd come home and he would need Dean for emotional support, not the other way around. Joe would get to stay home with her mom, whereas Dean would be left alone in a motel room playing mom to Sam. What I find fascinating is that Dean doesn't say anything. He really lets her feel nostalgic about it. Like he doesn't berate her about how lucky she was. He truly gives her space to feel her feelings. And if anything, like his feelings are more raw because he just lost his dad. As much as there's like this narrative through the series that like Dean is emotionally stunted and and he is in many ways, but like he's also so incredibly emotionally intelligent and intuitive and just kind like look at that moment like that that is just like such beautiful kindness right to kind of like give her that space we also get this really nice kind of just like yin yang kind of view of being the child of a hunter in that dean was always seeing the negative because that's what john brought home with him he brought home the weight of what he's had to deal with Whereas, look at her father as we learned william he came home and he left that grittiness behind him and just came home with hugs and happiness and stories of the you know knight in shining armor defeating the dragon i mean made hunting a heroic task that she looked up to you know if he came home every night the way that dean described john coming home i'm willing to bet she would not want to be a hunter the way she does now i I don't know if you disagree or their respective like formative experiences with hunting are definitely influencing the way that they're seeing it. Joe never saw the ugly of it. 
Dean only saw the ugly of it. Okay, let's just take a quick break from this heavy topic to talk about another heavy topic, but like in a different way. How does Dean know what chloroform smells like? I'm having flashbacks to the comment we made last episode, or you brought up last episode with the why does what was Dean's comment about you know being roofy not counting? And it's like we're secretly building this like image of Dean. Uh, that, like, was never, like, meant to be seen. I'm sorry, like, if we're talking about a, a, a Dean who understands handling and being around roofies and, you know, chloroform, it paints a picture of someone who has had to learn to defend themselves against these things. Like you said, we're starting to understand from these, like, throwaway lines, really. We're starting to see a picture of Dean just like you said, and like the things that he has had to defend himself from on top of like the quote unquote monsters. And that includes roofies and chloroform. If we can bring some levity though, Sam is so happy in this episode. Yeah, Sam's in the episode for like all of five scenes and he is just like happy the entire way through it. Good for him. He's just all smiles. Like the second that he learns that they're hunting like H.H. Holmes, he's like, Oh, that's so cool. Like, he's just so, he's such a happy little bean. And that makes me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but it also kind of ties into Joe. Like, Joe says, uh, again, towards the end of the episode, Joe says, like, you know, that woman's alive because of us. You know, she is looking at hunting. Like, she just went through this horribly traumatic hunt. Like, let alone her first hunt. That's, like, rough. But she's come out the other side, even seeing the darkness and going, here's what we did that was good. And while Sam's point isn't as altruistic, he is at least looking at this as something interesting. There is a learning opportunity. There is doing something a little bit more, you know, like, I'm sure, like, you must have those moments in those, you know, bars where all the hunters are together talking about their weirdest encounter. You know, oh yeah, no, we trapped the ghost of H.H. Holmes himself in a cellar and then buried him in cement. Like, that's a prolific story. Like, everyone's taken out a ghost. No one's taken out the ghost of a serial killer. That's a big one. And I think Sam's, like, enjoyment with that is just kind of... It's, it's, it's weirdly wholesome. Okay, I feel like weirdly wholesome is probably, like, the theme for all of the wholesomeness that we're going to see <laughs> on the show, frankly. And that's so interesting because, like, we're seeing Dean, who at this moment, like, is absolutely hating hunting, right? Like, he hates it. And it's contrasted with Joe and how much she wants to, to hunt. But in this moment, it's also contrasted with Sam who is still finding things to find interesting or to be excited about, whereas Dean just is not interested in this anymore, which is a sign of depression because that's something that he used to, quote-unquote, at least enjoy going on hunts, and now he doesn't anymore. Loving what you do, even if what you do is a bit of a different career than most people are used to, at least shows that there's still some passion, some drive, Dean is just, like, going through the motions because he has to. Exactly. So if we can come, like, to the end of the episode a little bit, like, one thing that I noticed is that Ellen is really, like, projecting her issues with John onto Dean. Not onto Sam. Onto Dean. Which means that, like, Dean is once again, like, in the situation where he has to clean up John's messes. And in this case, something that I really did appreciate in one of the five scenes that Sam is in, is that Sam is actually the voice of reason. You know, he tells him, like, there's nothing 
that you could have done. And this is a change because like Sam is finally acting like as an equal to Dean and not somebody that he has to take care of. So like there's this like very slight shift in dynamic that's actually really important because finally Dean is starting to hear like some adult feedback from his brother, which I think is so, so good for both of them really. The only way their relationship is going to become stronger and better and more healthy is seeing each other as equals. And, like, there's this really interesting moment, too, when, like, they go in to free the girls, right? Like, Dean is so focused on Joe, and Sam is actually out there looking for other girls. And I find that that's so, like, that's, again, like, a really nice representation of how they complement each other and their different archetypes. Because in this moment, like, Dean is focused on the micro, which is Joe, and Sam is focused more, like, on the macro. Like, there are other girls that need freeing. There is a ghost out there. You take care of Joe and I got the rest. There's no conversation. Like they just do it. Like that's, that's how naturally they gravitate towards their roles with each other. And I just think that that's again, like really cool. I feel like this might be a little more situational because of the perceived responsibility that Dean has taken in committing to the lie to Ellen, in committing to helping Joe. I mean, he feels responsible for what happened. It can be argued that, yes, he is partially at fault, but I think realistically, I don't think you can really put the blame on him. Like, I can see the argument for and against it. I tend to go, it's not his fault. He did everything he could, and, you know, he let Joe push herself. Like, that's not a bad thing. I actually agree with you. Like, I don't think that he's at, at fault and what happened. I don't think Joe is at fault. Like, I think that this is just, unfortunately, something that happens on hunts. Like, that is a risk that you take when when you go out on hunts. Especially when the thing you're hunting is after you specifically. And so we also find out why Ellen was so upset about this. I don't know if you want to talk about this. Like, I don't have much to say, but if there's something you want to talk about, we can definitely do that. What So what you're getting at for our listeners is the fact that Ellen then reveals to Joe that the reason her father is no longer with them is because he decided for the first time perceivably ever to hunt with a partner that happened to be John and only John came home. And as Joe says, it looks like John screwed up and cost him his life. I think the important thing here is I'm not going to sit here and say her anger is wrong. She's angry and I understand needing space from, in this case, someone she looked up to being Dean who is so directly connected to the person who, in theory, she feels responsible for the death of her father. But I feel like this is Ellen passing on her pain to Joe and just having it refocused on the wrong person. Absolutely agreed on this. It it very much felt like one of those cases of like the sins of the father passed on to the son, right? Which is basically Dean's MO this entire show. (laughs) Like, there's also something else there that I kind of wonder if we can scratch at. Because, as you know, I am no John apologist. (laughs) But, (laughs) famous last words. If we really look at the character that is John, do you really think, like, because if we're looking again as, like, if Joe is a mirror for... Dean, then can we maybe assume that Will is a mirror for John? Let's let's assume that for a second. So like the relationship is like mirrored there. Let's let's make that assumption. If something went wrong during the hunt, which as we said, nobody was at fault in the case of Dean and Joe, something happened, but unfortunately it cost William his life. Do you really think that that's what John would have said to Ellen? Like, John would have gone and been like, oh, there's nothing I could have done. With all of his trauma, with all of his military training, John would have for sure said, it's my fault. 
even if I think William had like jumped in front of the monster, you know, like I don't think that John would have told her the whole story. I think that he would have made himself the bad guy there. And I, again, cannot believe that I am defending John in this case, but I, I really don't know how much of it was his fault. And you know that I usually think everything is his fault. So I think that that says a lot. <laughs> John is the kind of guy who would have come back to have to deliver that news to Ellen and would have taken the blame, even if it wasn't his fault. Just in the fact that he was my partner, something went wrong, and he's the one who paid for it. I'm the one at fault. Not because the thing that he directly did caused his death. Not he pushed him in front of a train or off a cliff. It's the fact that I should have had his back. And even though I did everything I could, he's no longer here. That's my fault. I'm going to assume we don't learn what happened exactly. I feel like that isn't the kind of thing the show's going to dig into. Um, so again, this is purely up to headcanon and characterization. But I don't imagine, like, it'll get back to Ellen eventually that what really happened was that John made a stupid call and risked, you know, Will's life. And that's what happened. And it's really his fault. The end of the day is John came back, gave her the news, and Ellen directed her anger I mean, how rightfully so do you want to put it onto John? I mean, you consider the man went out and hunted however often he did, came back happy every time, and the one time he goes with John, doesn't come back, doesn't paint the best picture. But you know what? At the end of the day, Ellen is allowed to feel the way Ellen feels. That is your right as a human is to feel and to interpret and to control your own emotions based on how you feel. I mean, this is very rudimentary stuff. By all intended purpose, if Joe is now angry with John and is misdirecting that, you know, anger and pain at Dean because it's the closest thing she has to John. I don't think she's in the right, but she's allowed to do so. Yeah, and I think that Dean also, I mean, it's so easy for Dean to just, like, accept somebody's anger because that's all he knows. But I really do think that to a certain degree he understands it. He's like, oh, wow. You know, he blames himself for his father's death. So it's kind of easy for him to blame himself for other things even though it's not necess- it's not at all his fault in this case it's another excuse for dean to punch the blame for dad's thing card and just go i guess i'm being blamed again for dad's mistakes i'm accepting this yeah and i but i think that that really plays into like dean's sense of guilt right like that's kind of a trademark of dean winchester oh a bird fell out of a tree must be my fault. <laughs> He's responsible for all, for everything in his mind. And so everything and everyone. And so there you go. Which is really interesting if you think about it compared to Sam, who is the one with the chosen one complex. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, Dean, Dean, Dean is to be blamed for everything while Sam's the hero. Yeah. And Sam is always the one who's like, you couldn't have done anything. Or like in faith when he was like, we couldn't have known. <laughs> like <laughs> He's always so quick to find excuses. And, and I mean, I don't fault Sam for this at all because the reality is that there's nothing they could have done and they couldn't have known in faith. But it's just really interesting to see, again, like the, the archetypes of Sam and Dean in this case. Yeah. With all that wrapped up, shall we jump into critical time? So as we enter critical time, would you regale me with who our writer and director were for this episode? <laughs> I would love to regale you with this information. <laughs> so the writer of this episode is Matt Witten, who is actually writing for the very first time for Supernatural. And the director is Kim Manners, which we know by the beautiful freckles of Jensen Ackles that are in our face during this entire episode. <laughs> You mentioned that, and now that you say it, like, yeah, they kind of are. Will Matt come back to write more? 
I think so. There's a couple of episodes in season two that he writes, but that's about it. Like he doesn't write too much for, for Supernatural all that much. Because I will admit, from a writing standpoint, I did enjoy, I overall enjoyed this episode. The writing was also, I felt, very good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, we talked about so much stuff in, in story time, and there wasn't that much, like, super problematic things. Like, there's one thing that I really want to bring up, but that's really just about it. So, honestly, like, mm-hmm. not bad for yeah, Supernatural. <laughs> I'm impressed. Still doesn't pass the Bechdel test, but that's a whole other story. This entire show, if we ever pass that test in a single episode, I'll be shocked. I do notice that uh, Jared is still in the cast this episode. Yes. And uh, and you did also notice that Sam is pretty absent throughout the episode. That's actually because Jared had to take some time off in order to take care of his wrist that he broke a few a few episodes ago. Is there anything you want to bring up? I know it's the, the age of the show, so I am forgiving it for the lack of technology. But the CG on that first shot of the ectoplasm, I could count the polygon. And I will give you, as someone who's worked in amateur film there is a great tip for hiding things that look a little bad on film and that's to not zoom in on them who knows the technical reason for the shot obviously like when it's dripping in other locations it's an actual like putty or paste or goop they're using why they chose to use it for this one scene and not go practical i will not know maybe they just couldn't make it work feasibly while still having someone behind the wall to peek out or whatever the case is but like that just like it's one of the, it's the littlest thing that will just pull me out of my immersion because otherwise this episode there was so much practical and gorgeous effects um I'll even admit that really like gross out like skeleton like partially decomposed body in one of the cells where you even like a bug crawl out of its eye socket at one point like it was dark enough it was poorly lit it was only shown for a few seconds they didn't linger on it that could either have been really good practical or really decent CG. I don't know. I'd have to go back and actually examine it, and I didn't have to. But I think that that's the magic of it, right? The fact that you didn't wonder what it was. You were just like, oh, this is a skeleton. It wasn't like, oh, this is bad CG. There's a difference, and this is what it does to TV. So in one episode to do it so right and so wrong, again, the show is so good at just taking a step forward and then jumping back down that next step. But, you know, I feel like... Again, not trying to be too cynical about the show, but like that is the show. It does some things so well and others so poorly and sometimes in the same episode and sometimes it just gives you whiplash. And I think that in this case it's visual, so it's very apparent. But yeah, I, I, you know, this doesn't surprise me, I guess. And speaking of things done well, I mean, I know we discussed this back in season one. There were some issues with the music and the licensing. And clearly we're seeing the benefits of season two where they've clearly sorted that out because it's been great tunes this season. Again, picking songs that really hit the nail on the head when it comes to the themes of the episodes. Uh, For anyone who didn't catch it in this episode, the song they opened with early on in the uh, episode was the song Surrender by Cheap Trick, which is literally a song about a parent telling their child about the dangers of the world they're currently growing up in and making sure to watch out for themselves to not trust people because people can take advantage of you. On theme. On theme. Yeah. Very on theme. Uh, Really good choice for this. There's one thing. Can I harp on one thing? Yes, please harp. So there's this line, this one line, and it and it's Dean who said, "Sweetheart, this ain't gender studies." My whole body recoils when I hear this line. So first, like Dean has never called Joe or any other woman like sweetheart on the show. 
And it sounds super demeaning in that context. And like, I say this as a woman who has been demeaned by men in that way, where like when they want to make you feel small, they call you honey or sweetheart or like in a very patronizing way. And it's just so infuriating. And to see it playing out that way in a moment where like Joe was actually asking, like, do you think that I can't do this because I'm a woman? And for him to like make fun of her and demean her in that way was just like... I did not like that. Like that was bad writing because it's completely out of character compared to what we just saw and what he, like that space, that emotional space that he gave her before. So I don't know. I'm not, to me, this is not Dean saying it. This is bad writing and that's why it's in critical time. And the worst part is it's surprisingly a decent point he's trying to make. Oh, absolutely. And that's what I'm getting to after that. Like, he's not saying that, like, it's about women. It's about amateurs. It's about people who don't have experience. And like, and that's kind of the point that I want to make. That line didn't need to be there. He could have just said women can do the job fine. Amateurs can't. The whole like sweetheart, this ain't gender studies. We did not need that at all. It's not needed. You remove it. And it's the same. And Dean doesn't sound like an idiot. Again, it's a step forward and a step back. It's a great point. It's them really driving home the point that this is not a matter of, you know, like gender. This is literally a matter of this is a job. And unless you are well-trained, you are going to get yourself hurt. To then say it in this very negative, demeaning, misogynistic way, just like... It proves her point, if anything. Yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, you know, the thing that really annoys me with this is that, like, The whole goal of him saying this, of him saying like, women can do the job fine, amateurs can't. It's to show that he's not actually misogynistic. But that line disproves that point. Because that is absolutely, like, that is said with a hatred, honestly. And again, like, I'm speaking from personal experience here because I am also, I am a woman. I was raised as a woman. And so, like, this is stuff that I've heard before. Like, oh, don't try to bring in, like, your feminist ideas. Like, oh, my God, what do you think feminism is? And this is kind of, like, my second point about this, that, like, what's wrong with gender studies? You know, like, I feel like this feeds into a hatred of, like, formal studies of the place of women in society. And, like, I will give you that there's a lot to criticize about social justice in academia. Like, so much to criticize. But this isn't it. Like, this isn't what's going on. So, I don't know. I hated that line, and I really wish that it wasn't there. And to me, that's not even something that Dean would say at all. It was out of character, in my opinion. The only time I can legitimately hear Dean calling someone sweetheart is someone with a weapon in their hand that he is sort of mocking. For sure. I mean, like, but that's the thing. It becomes a mocking. Which is problematic in its own way because it's then kind of shifting a whole, like, gender balance thing on, you know, like, feminizing somebody to demean them, which isn't to demean... That's a whole other bucket of worms and we'll deal with that when we get there eventually because I'm sure we will, but... It's... It's a different bucket of worms, but it's rooted in the same misogyny and hatred of women. Would you like to listen to our voicemail this week? I would love to. Let's hear it now. Hey, it's Nicole. After listening to your episode on Home and your discussion of the scene where Dean calls John, I couldn't help but notice the parallels to the scene in Lost and Found, the first episode of the 13th season, with Dean out back at the fast food place. One of the first things that caught my attention was the extremely similar shot composition and direction of these two scenes. 
but as I'm no expert in cinematography, I don't have a lot to be said on that front, but I felt it was important to point out for comparison's sake. Both times we see Dean doing his best and trying to keep up his facade that he presents to the world before reaching the point where he has to step away from Sam to let his buildup of emotions out. Each time he places himself behind a structure that acts as a shield from the rest of the world, because as much as the moment calls for his emotional vulnerability, he still can't bear his feelings out into the open or to his brother who's on the other side of the building both times. In Home, we see Dean break down and ask for help, something we haven't seen before. He reaches out to his father and begs for guidance and assistance for their current situation, and as referenced in your discussion, it's almost like a prayer. Dean's journey with Faith is a point of focus over the course of the show. After losing his father and truly beginning to confront the way he actually feels about the way John treated him, Dean is portrayed as faithless in many instances. Now bringing it to Lost and Found, Dean and Sam have just lost an ally, a mother, and their best friend, or more for Dean, depending on who you ask. They are also grappling with the birth of Lucifer's son. When at the fast food place, Dean has one of his first moments alone after these events, a rare occasion where he's given even just a minute to begin to process what has just occurred. Dean, even in his acknowledgement of heaven, angels, and the existence of God, has never once in the series prayed to God before. This on its own shows how deeply he's hurting and how lost he feels to even consider doing what he calls begging to someone he lacks faith in. But this also comes back to numerous instances throughout the show, where Chuck has been directly parallel to John, an absent and manipulative father with demands of his children that he expects to be followed absolutely. And that's without even mentioning Dean as Michael's vessel and Sam as Lucifer's, mirroring both Chuck and John's treatment of their children and the way that their kids reacted to such. Dean had treated John for so long as this godlike figure, but when his belief in him fell apart, so did the rest of Dean's faith. In a moment of true pain and desperation, we see Dean pull together whatever ounce of trust in God he had deep down and reach out, just as he had to John 12 years prior. When Chuck doesn't show, his hope is once again dashed and he's left to pick up the pieces of a mess created by God, just as he's been doing for John his whole life. Like most parallels in Supernatural, it's quite heartbreaking, but it certainly leaves a lot to think about. So thank you for wanting to respond, and I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say about this. Wow, that was a good voicemail. I obviously cannot respond to all of it because as much as a lot of these bits of information or things I have learned just through cultural osmosis, I haven't reached those points in the story and I don't want to make assumptions or guess. I really feel like that is one of the things I've been saying about Dean for a while is there is this constant need to have something or someone to believe in as much as he doesn't really consider himself to be a devout person or a faithful person. He sort of needs to have someone to believe in and even here in season two, we are seeing how he, back in season one, had all this faith in John to the point where when things really kind of like hit a wall, he had to call John and beg for help. Not getting it, obviously. And then now that we are seeing him without that guiding light in his life, someone that he can consider a guiding figure, how it hurts him and how it makes it harder for him to deal with things and how he has to put on this like strong face and the other part is what i've been begging for episode after episode is just time for dean to reflect on things and clearly i'm learning now that i ain't gonna see that for a while am i i mean the thing is like with a show like supernatural like a network show like this that goes on for so long you can't develop your characters too quickly otherwise like you run out of storylines for one and then for two like your characters are unrecognizable from the beginning to the end and generally you don't want to do that in network tv not saying that i like it but that's that's the reality that we're that, like that's the sandbox that we're handed right and so we have to deal with that wow nicole what a voicemail <laughs> also <laughs> there's so much in there and like there's a couple of things that have like 
really hit me, particularly when you talk about Dean having to hide behind a wall in order to show his feelings and like to have to feel, basically he has to make sure that he is in a safe space before he can open himself up. And that's sort of, well, obviously because I am who I am, I have to talk about Cass, but like it sort of reminds me of how like he almost instantly opens up to Cass and like that's not even a question, like it just happens. And like that's so different from everything that we've seen of Dean. So that's that's just like a, a thought that this sparked. Another thing that you talked about is like it that this was a moment of true pain and desperation. And I'm I'm gonna make like a reference to the finale. So if if there are any listeners who are still very raw from this and don't want to listen to this discussion, that's fine. Just skip ahead like a minute or two. So this was a moment where Dean was feeling, like you said, true pain and desperation. And he felt it in home, he felt it in Lost and Found. But another moment where he feels that is also in the finale. And in that moment, he has no one to turn to because Chuck's not there, Cass, Cass is not there. So like, and his dad is not there. Like, who does he have to turn to and ask for help who's not right there with him? I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. And I wonder if maybe like, that's not the moment that like, it was just too much for him. Like he didn't know how to reach out for help. And finally, you also mentioned something about having to clean up messes. And I think that that is so true of Dean. And we were talking about this in this episode about how he always takes on responsibility for things that he is not responsible for. I made a joke about a bird falling from the tree, but like that is literally true. We're seeing like how much he feels the need to like make everything okay. Like, oh, I'll fix it. Oh, dad screwed up on this. I'll fix it. Oh, Chuck screwed up on this. I'll fix it. Oh, Sam messed up. I'll fix it. I got this. I think I'm just flabbergasted that this is showing up so early, like as early as home and we're already seeing it. And it's so developed here and it just keeps on getting worse (laughs) through the series. So yeah, I'm just, I'm honestly like your voicemail was really thoughtful and thank you so, so much for sending it to us because what's interesting about these voicemails and these comments from our community is that they help us kind of like keep a more macro look on on the series because we go episode to episode and also I try like not to skip ahead too much. And so these kind of allow us to look forward and backward and just be like, oh, this is a bigger narrative through the series. So thank you so much for for sending us this voicemail. Seriously, thank you. That was, it was a beautiful voicemail. It was well said. And I just, it's given me a lot to think about and a lot to look forward to. Like, I know nothing about who or what Chuck is, but I really want to get to know them and maybe dislike them from the sounds of it. But that's, (laughs) if they're anything like John, as you've made it sound, I'm going to hate them. Uh, (laughs) On that note, shall we go uh, to the crossroads? Would you like to start with your deal today? I would. I wasn't really sure going into this because I really enjoyed the episode and I'll be honest, even coming into it, I hadn't even really picked up on the line you brought up in Critical Time that you didn't like. Like, it stood out to me, but it didn't really, like, grind my gears as much and that's something I'm a little upset about that it took me this long to really, like, put it together and realize how bad it was because I think I was focusing on the, the good parts of it. But I think for me, the thing that bugged me the most in this episode was... It felt a little out of character, the way it ended with Joe. I feel like there should have been an extra scene, and this is my Crossroads deal. Sam, who has been very absent, I think should have approached her. Because Dean was right to not go after her. 
She said, I need space, leave me alone, walked away, and Dean was like, I'm not going to chase. I believe this is both because Dean respects boundaries, but I believe it is also Dean going, oh, my dad did something terrible and I'm being blamed for it? Totally cool with me because Dean. And that's other problems. But I think this could have been a moment where Sam maybe tried to say something like, you know, they pack up the car, they're leaving, they realize this is a goodbye, and Sam says, like, hold on, and just confronts Joe. Not a, you know, like, forgive, forget, mistakes happen. No, no. But just a, you're mad at John. I understand that. You have every right to be. I'm mad learning this. But Dean is not John. You know what, Drew? I would have loved that. And I, the only thing that I'll say is that maybe it was just a little too early to do this. Like, the emotion was still too strong for her to be able to truly hear it. But I think I would have liked to have Sam more involved in this because it's his dad too. And while the relationship between Dean and Joe definitely seems to be more present than between Joe and Sam, I really, I think that this could have been an opportunity also for Sam and Joe to bond. It really, I mean, like, again, you would have had to rewrite something. Maybe they would have had to spend the night they'd sleep in the car because they don't want to be nearby and then the next morning hit the road because they were waiting something from Ash. Write up some bull. There's always a way to write a reason for them to stay a little longer. But I think it would have been nice to have started to build some relationship between Sam and Joe. I think it would have been a good place not to, like, come to a happy-go-lucky conclusion, flying to each other's arms, life is happy, but just to plant the seed of you're you're allowed to feel the way you're allowed to feel. Turning your anger onto someone who is not the responsible party is not what your father would have wanted. It Like, they're... It could have been done in a way where, like, your mother is mad at our father, and she has the right to be. You have now learned that you have the right to be mad at him. But you have spent time with Dean. Dean, who has done everything to try to get you out of this life and to, like, support you in this time. He is not John, because he is not... Even, like, draw the comparison of, of, like, as much as Dean is a, like, parental figure in this scenario, without blatantly saying it, he is trying to help you find a better path, which John wouldn't have done. Yeah, that, yeah, I like that, actually. And obviously, like, to get this beautiful ending to at least have some emotional growth, which I think we all need, I'd have to give something up. And weirdly enough, there's a murder scene in this episode that could have just been cut. Like, I'll be honest, I can't remember if the woman they save at the end is the first girl kidnapped or the second girl kidnapped. Yeah, agreed. I, I like it. Less murder, more emotional bonding. <laughs> okay. Let's go with that. (laughs) (laughs) And what would be your deal at the crossroads? Well, if it wasn't obvious before, I would actually like to cut the line, sweetheart, this ain't gender studies, and just keep the rest of the line, which is women can do the job fine, amateurs can't. And I'm I'm not too sure if I'm gaining or losing something by doing this, frankly. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's such a minor change that makes such a difference that I, I don't even know if I'm like if I'm supposed to give something up or you know, I don't know. I don't quite understand. Like this 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 phrase could be just if yeah, this phrase could just be rephrased to Joe, that's not what I'm saying at all. Women can do the job fine, amateurs can't. And that's my crossroads deal. You're right. It really is. It feels to me like the kind of line that was like written one way and they just sort of just kept doing takes of it until they got one that someone liked and they chose to use. 
But the fact is that it remains in the final cut, and that to me is a problem. So whoever decided to put it in, whoever decided to keep it, and whoever decided to broadcast it, like there's there's a whole chain of command there that sort of failed. Like this is a what I like to call a community fail, no matter how it happened. And that's very valid. I, you know what? You're right. Like at the end of the day, it it made it to air. There are people who thought this was okay and let it happen, and. That is the problem with TV in this era, unfortunately, is there are so many people who are allowed to make choices that choose to make these bad choices. And much like John, we can blame him for it. (laughs) Oh, John. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Marie Vigoureau and myself, Drew Shulman. This week, we'd like to thank Nicole for their voicemail. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voicemail recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. And, of course, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. Make sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to grow our community. Until next week. Carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. Ugh, John. <laughs> Ugh, John. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe I was a John apologist in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know, seriously. I know.